You're listening to Thinkers What Works podcast. I'm your host, Jason Todd. My co-host, Alex Gary, is here. And also today, Patrick O'Neill. He is a management consultant, teacher, and writer out with his newest book, The Only Certain Freedom, The Transformative Journey of the Entrepreneur. Patrick, welcome to the What Works podcast. Jason and Alex, thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Um, you've been at this since 1988. If, I, if I'm reading your bio correctly, that's when you started your management consulting business. Uh, but now you're out with your second book. Uh, so you were doing it. You know, you were doing your business for a long, long time before you decided to go into be, being an author. What pushed you pushed you in that direction? Well, actually, uh, I have been writing for all of that time, and um, it. it it takes a long time to learn a new craft, and it has taken me uh, all of those years uh, as a student of writing to be able to put together a manuscript that I felt was uh, representative of what I wanted to say and communicative to the reader. And and in the summary of the of the book description, one thing that kind of uh, captivates me, you have this this part here where you tell the narrative of your own of your own experiences. You struggled to take control of your career path while connecting with each twist and turn. Tell us what, what has, what is this referring to? What is the struggle that, that you're talking about? Well, I found myself trapped in a, what I felt was a career that, uh, first of all, I didn't like. And second of all, uh, was turning me into a person that I, uh, didn't, uh, recognize anymore. I was, uh, a young, vice president uh, with international accounts in the public relations business in the early 1980s. And uh, I'm sure you've all seen Mad Men. Well, it was pretty much like that. And I was a guy who'd just come out of school, didn't really know what I wanted to do, and um, drifted into PR and found myself uh, a few years later um, doing things that uh, I felt were uh, morally suspect, including promoting tobacco, uh, the tobacco industry um, one day and selling smoking cessation products the next. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it, 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 it was, uh, it became uh, very difficult uh, for me to reconcile my values with my profession. And um, it, it, one day while I was shaving for work, I saw something in my eyes that I think everybody around me already knew, uh, but it took me a while to recognize. And that was that I'd lost my way and I was really unhappy. Wow. So this this journey that you're talking about, uh, that you take other people on and, and guide them through is one that you have lived yourself is, is is the reason you're writing these books is is it birthed out of your own personal experience as much as your your yeah. experience with others? Oh, yes, it is. Um, you know, I don't think uh, lived experience to me is uh, the real uh, the real deal. Um, I think the theoretical approaches to uh, dealing with change, which is what I I do now, I become a management consultant and I take organizations uh, and people through the process of change. Uh, I think those are best guided by someone who has, um, you know, suffered the uh, challenges of finding their own way and, uh, you know, building something from nothing uh, through wits, courage, resourcefulness, and a dash of faith. I'm, I'm curious about the um, working with organizations. 
um, on change. When does somebody come to you? You know, is, is it is it when they've had uh, just a horrible year or some kind of um, process breakdown? I mean, when do companies typically get in touch with you? Well, the smart ones come when they have an intuition that, um, you know, the zeitgeist is changing. But most organizations come when they hit a, a threshold of pain that they can't ignore any longer. And uh, that might mean that they find themselves in a competitive, uh, uh, in a competitive difficulty, or they might find that internally there's uh, so much strife that productivity and efficiency are undermined. And so usually the, the, the organizations that will stick with it are the ones that see that there's much to be gained by facing difficulties. And it takes as much energy to avoid difficulties as it does to face difficulties. So that's usually who comes knocking at my door. How long did you suffer in your own uh, kind of existence doing something that you you weren't happy happy doing? How long did you suffer in that space before you, before that moment you looked in the mirror and decided this has got to change? Well, a couple of years. And the reason um, is that I had mission drift. Basically, in 1988, I left my job. And it took me a year from the time I made the decision to actually leave uh, to do it. I had one child and one on the way. I had a large mortgage. I had no customers. I had no prospects. But I felt that if I didn't do something different, uh, I was going to both lose my family and probably lose uh, lose my my life because it was uh, it was something that was killing me. So it took you a year in that space, and then you made the decision that something had to change. What were the what were the practical steps? Maybe looking back on it, then that then you took to move move beyond that 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 stuck point. Well, uh, the first thing is that uh, you have to be willing to break with the status quo in your own life. Uh, you can't settle for less, and you can't put off making a decision until the circumstances are perfect, because they'll never be perfect. To do that, you have to befriend risk, and there's a, a fairly serious field of creative tension that enters your life when you carry a, a huge mortgage, you have young kids, and you wanna take a leap of faith into the void, trusting that you will be able to find your way with a, you know, a financial gun to your head. So the most important thing in all of that is you have to trust yourself. You have to have a firm belief that your gifts and talents and your knowledge and skills will be the safety net that holds you when you have no other safety net to do it. So what did you, what did, what did you experience when you took that, that leap of faith that you talk about? Um, well, it, it, it immediately requires an identity change. You have to go from being somebody's employee, uh, which carries a, a fair degree of certainty, to becoming an entre entrepreneur where there are no guarantees of success. And as a matter of fact, you know, there's, there's some significant statistics that if you look at them, will scare you to death. You know, 50 million startups annually, 100,000 daily, 
300 million people taking a new product or service to market and 50% will fail. Yeah, well, only 50? So only, well, that's probably <laughs> a conservative estimate. That's a little high, right? <laughs> probably a conservative estimate. Yeah. So you, you've really, you've really got to, you know, you've got to connect with your gifts and talents and your knowledge and skills and your courage and your resourcefulness. And many people uh, find that daunting, but for me, it was life-giving. Yeah. And and so now you you've taken your personal journey to other organizations and you you're a management consultant. So I imagine that you work with a lot of entrepreneurs and small business owners uh and then even some large businesses to 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 help other other people navigate through that space, those stuck points like you talk about. So what what kind of um what kind of looks do you get back when you 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 know, so easily say these words uh, to somebody else who's who's certainly stuck. Um, well, I, I I usually get um, people who are uh, deeply interested in listening to what I have to say because they know I have experience in this and they know that I have a track record of, of supporting people uh, to face the unknown and um, you know stay in what I call sufficiency, which is that whatever the challenge that comes to your gate, which might be inventing new products or new services, uh, that you have within you the resources that you need in order to be successful. And as long as you hold on to that belief and you apply yourself, there's usually not too much that you can't do or not too much that you can't find other people to help you do. And, you know, that's one of the most important things is to, to, get, uh, to get the right kind of support in order to be uh, successful because you're not going to be able to do everything and you don't know everything. Right. So you talk about sufficiency, that you what you have is enough or who you are is enough, and then people, and when you can't find it within yourself, there's somebody gathered around you who can be enough in that moment. And and then you also you you also talk about application. Uh, walk us walk us through those steps of of coming to the realization of sufficiency, and then and then how, really walking out that application. What what practically does that look like? Do you have any examples of somebody who's walked that step? Well, I think the the. the the important thing that you have to do is to uh, recognize that everyone carries a singular dream for their lives and that that dream is it can be expressed through their businesses and the more you're connected to your authenticity and to your uh, you know your inner drive, the easier it becomes to bring a product or service to market. The biggest challenge is fear. And the carrier of fear is the self-critic. So you have to, it's the, your toughest competitor. And um, many of us feed the self-critic gourmet meals. You know, you mentioned gourmet meals, and this is going to be a long question. So the other night I was on TV, and, and my internet wasn't working, so I had to actually go to cable, right? Like, you know, nobody does that anymore. Um, I ran across the, the movie Ratatouille uh, from Pixar. Are you aware of that one? 
I am. Okay. So the the premise inside it was there was a this chef named Gusteau who was a great Paris chef, but then he started he wrote these books and had this show where it said anyone can cook, and that made the other chefs in town kind of mad. Um, you know, when I look at your title, uh, do you believe anyone can be an entrepreneur? No. No, I don't. I, I don't think it's for everybody because it requires a certain kind of, of um, courage. And I, I'm not sure everyone is equipped to uh, face the rigors of uh, inventing your, your career. So I think a lot of people are willing uh, to play it safe, remain comfortable, and avoid failure. And for the entrepreneur, failure is part of the journey and something that needs to be befriended. And you talk about your book being applicable not only to an entrepreneur, but also to, I think you term it as like connecting that that journey to, to everybody, because everybody experiences some sort of hardship and joy. Uh, and and you talk about this idea for a singular dream. Everybody has a singular dream for their lives, which can be expressed through their business. But by saying that, you're saying it doesn't have to be expressed through business. It could be expressed through any number no. of things. That's right. The, I, I chose uh, the journey of the entrepreneur as a, as a metaphor for um, how to get unstuck in your life. So this book, The Only Certain Freedom, uh, is, a, is applicable to someone who uh, finds themselves trapped in a relationship that they've outgrown or uh, is stuck in a family dynamic that they, that they uh, feel needs to be retired uh, or is looking at the second half of their life and wondering what to do uh, with it because they've accomplished everything that they set out to do in the first half of their life, but they're not sure how to take the next step. So the book is, is applicable to anyone who finds himself in the status quo, locked into, uh, you know, uh, something that is, is, is they've outgrown and they're looking for a way to uh, recreate themselves and um, uh, generate, you know, um, something meaningful. This is your second book, correct? That's correct. How does it differ from the first one? Well, the first book uh, is called 100 Chances, Short Meditations on Opportunity, Risk, and Probability. And that was a book that I wrote uh, as a result of watching way too much hockey. And I got very <laughs> interested in uh, how the announcers, and I used to play hockey. I played until I was 18 years old. I found out at 18 what everybody already knew about me at 14, which is I wasn't going to go any further. <laughs> but... But you had a Having singular dream that, for your life, and you were going to be a hockey player. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to be a hockey player. That's right. So anyway, I, I, I was watching hockey, with, and I was listening to the announcers talk about uh, how opportunities are made on the ice. And uh, it, it, what sank in for me was they talked about um, chances being generated through intention. And I thought about it, well, that's not really how we hold chance in our culture as, an, you know, as a thing. We hold it as some, you know, kind of visitation that happens supernaturally, that, you know, we're lucky if we get a chance. 
But in sports, we make chances for ourselves. And I began to apply that, uh, that mindset to how does chance occur? How do we set ourselves up in life to generate chances? What does it take to, uh, you know, to increase the possibility of chances? How, do, how does chance and probability relate? So that's where the first book is located. And when you started applying that, principle what did you what did you see in your change in your own life I, well it 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 puts you, the responsibility for generating an outcome into the conscious mind so that we're not passive when it comes to creating or initiating openings for action initiation literally means to open and so, um, you know, as creative human beings, we have the power to generate openings for action through our thoughts, through our words, and through our gestures. And so I began to work with that and began to teach those principles to business leaders and um, entrepreneurs. Are you familiar with Napoleon Hill? I, I am vaguely familiar with Napoleon Hill. Yeah, so he he wrote on a similar topic, I think back in the 20s or somewhere around there, um, basically yeah. stating that uh, very successful people, and this is how he, he started, he analyzed very successful people, uh, such as Rockefeller, and broke down this idea, broke down kind of the similarities between these individuals and found that one of their guiding each they each shared some guiding principles one of which is they had a singular focus and they intentionally went about um went went about believing that they would be successful in their focus and by doing so opportunities whether they whether opportunities were created by them or whether they just saw them in a different way they saw things that other people didn't see simply because that's what they began looking for sure Sure, I think that's, I think that's a, a smart insight. So you've got this uh, new book, "Only Certain Freedom: The Transformative Journey of the Entrepreneur." It's applicable to entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. but also applicable to to other people who are at that point of being stuck. Uh, and mm -hmm. you're you're speaking out of your own lived experience and then the experience of others. Um, what what would you say to somebody who's considering reading this book? Uh, and they're you know it's one of other books on the on the shelf, but what what would you encourage them with? Well, I think uh, be be prepared to disrupt the way you think about yourself. I think many people believe that they're trapped in circumstances that are sort of fear based, uh, and um, um, incorrect assessments of what the possibilities are for them. So we're not never really trapped in anything. It's a story that we tell ourselves, uh, you know, uh, I, I won't be able to support myself or, you know, I, I don't know how to do something or it, it's all negative self-talk. And so to, in order to get unstuck, we have to change the way we see and the way we think. Because we, uh, you know, whatever comes to our gate, we can handle. Otherwise, it wouldn't be there. We have all of the inner resources that we need. And everyone is uh, born with innate gifts. Uh, they develop gifts 
through uh, practice in their lives. And then there are these hidden gifts that we only uh, we only get to see when they're called forth by a, a circumstance or a situation. So human beings are, are quite powerful. And uh, the only thing that prevents us from um, commanding our powers is fear. Do you have uh, an example of one of the, you know, a couple of the people you've worked with over the years that getting him past that fear was quite an ordeal that, you know, you thought maybe, Hey, I, I just don't think this guy's going to make it, but they, but they ended up getting past that level or, or, or that fear and, and getting through that self-talk and, and getting onto the entrepreneur path and they're su- successful today. Yeah, I can think of a couple of examples. Um, the, the fear, uh, it had more to do in both of these examples uh, one was a um, uh, a group of partners in an entrepreneurial marketing services business who um, uh, were self-destructing because they couldn't get on the same page uh, around a vision forward for the company. It had been successful, and it was at the end of a, an, a, a one phase and kind of stuck before going in to the next phase, and the partners were afraid actually to talk to each other about the issues because they, uh, one, were conflict avoidant, and two, uh, didn't uh, trust that they would be able to find win-win solutions to their problems. So um, confronting fear is the only way through fear. And um, learning to talk to each other about the difficulties uh, is the only way to discover if there's enough common ground to um, to get to the next stage of of their growth. A similar dynamic in a uh, uh, in a not-for-profit organization where the uh, senior leader told me that the organization was an interlocking matrix of hatred. Wow, and you know, you can only you can only guess. That, that's a good way to put dysfunctional, something, right? That, yeah, that's a really good way to guess put something. how dysfunctional that was. Well, okay. so you know, what what are what are the issues that people are grappling with that have turned them from collaborators into uh, opponents, and often threshold points are uh, rife with conflict. Yeah. These these are, you speak with such um, clarity. Uh, I, 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 I sense within you what you're, what it's like uh, to, to have been with you on this journey. Because these are, these are very pointed statements that you're speaking about and you're trying to make it very clear in, in how you communicate about them because you, because I think that you're, underscoring for us the importance of of what it is that you're uh what is it you're communicating so um you you talk about disrupting the way they think about themselves and people make incorrect assessments confronting fear is the only way through fear and then you're talking about turning collaborators uh into opponents which happens sort of mysteriously but there are probably steps to it uh, and then once you're in that state, how do you get out of it other than to continue to talk, which is challenging then when you're opponents um, yeah. instead well, of yeah, and, and it's turning 
opponents back back into collaborators. Wow. Well, I I just want to say, if if people are listening to this podcast, we just have to say, Patrick is in Toronto. He's not in Rockford. Um, And so I'm glad that you came on uh, the podcast with us. And also, uh, luckily, yesterday we signed NAFTA. So we're friends again. So that made this a a much more friendly conversation, (laughs) right? (laughs) It did. And, and, you know, I'll be able to come uh, to Illinois uh, in the the not too distant future. Canadians in the U.S. are now friends again. This is this is uh, pleasant times. until the next hockey war. Right. <laughs> well, it's only because you didn't make it to hockey that people have opponents. That's right. <laughs> you know, okay, I got one more weird thing. Uh, Patrick, and his, did you ever read Malcolm Gladwell and all his stat-based writing? I, I've read some of it. Okay. One of my favorites is age bias. What was your birthday? What is your birthday? When? Your, yeah, what, what day? It's- May 5th. May 5th. So you are an early year birth, uh, birthday. Because one of Malcolm Gladwell's, yes. my favorite chapters, was he looked at a Canadian um, youth hockey team that was a championship, you know, champion team across Canada. And he found that something like 80% of them were born before July 1st. And, yep. he, you know, he thought it was uh, an anomaly. But then he looked at all of the Canadian-born players in the NHL, and it was the same yep. thing. And it's because yep. at age five, uh, they use you know, the calendar year as your cutoff. So if you're trying out for a league at uh, age five and you were born on January 2nd and you're skating against a kid who's born on December 23rd, you're a year older than that kid and you're, you're, you have better balance and whatever. Uh, so you end up dominating that kid. So the kid, people born earlier in the year end up getting more ice time, better coaching, things like that. I just I, I always thought that was fascinating. Anytime somebody says they were a... A competitive hockey player now. I just have to ask him when they were born. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Unless you're a prodigy, and then age doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> That's true. Uh, you're. Yeah. And it sounds like your hockey. It sounds like your hockey experience was much uh, similar to my football experience, which <laughs> lasted one semester. I thought it was going to be a really great time. My mother was afraid for me, and halfway through the season, I knew why. Uh, and so, I fortunately, I sprained my finger and. And got to sit out most of the rest of the season. <laughs> uh, sprained finger. That didn't well, help you. It, it probably saved you from multiple head injuries. <laughs> well, that's that's true. Yes, and shame. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's Patrick, uh, th- this it's fascinating talking to another person uh, in your journey. Uh, you've got you've got these two books. We've got the only certain freedom, the transformative journey of the entrepreneur. I'm assuming p- people can pick that up uh, on Amazon. Uh, and Amazon or at your favorite bookstore. Fantastic. And then your and then your first book was a hundred chances, short meditations on opportunity, risk, and probability. Not only for entrepreneurs, um, but you you write for, for all people, for anybody. anybody who's stuck. And that's right. Clearly, uh, from your own and other people's wisdom. So we're we're looking forward to to reading that as well. Patrick, thanks for being on the What Works podcast. Alex and Jason, thanks so much. The What Works Podcast is a production of Thinker Ventures. Learn more at thinkerventures.com.